What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. On it, we read through part two of Autonomous Resistance to Slavery and Colonization by Russell Maroon Schultz. As we wrap up Black August, we hope everybody had time and space to study, to rest, to train, and to commemorate the history of Black August, the history of new African liberation, the history of African liberation. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please share, repost, leave a comment, leave a review, right? Tell a friend who you think could learn from some of the information that we're sharing. If you want to support our decolonization programs that we're working on in the community, please consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or donating via Venmo or Cash App. We are our own liberators. Free the people, free the land. Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time, and good night. having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm going to remain a soldier till the war is won. Autonomous Resistance to Slavery and Colonization by Russell Maroon Schultz Part 2 The Dragon and the Hydra A Historical Study of Organizational Methods Quote You have 15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and people's struggles to go through, not only to change the conditions, but in order to change yourselves and make yourselves fit for political rule. Karl Marx, addressing the IWMA, the body that would later become the first international. Marx's words hit close to home. I've been involved in such movements for 40 years, a product, originally, of the black liberation movement of the 1960s, and subsequently being held as a political prisoner in the U.S. since 1972. Over that period, I've participated in a number of mass and party formations, it never fails to amaze me how much energy and time is dedicated towards establishing various groups, claims to being the so-called vanguard of some struggle for justice, when in the end, most of these exercises turn out to be sterile, when they don't degenerate into fratricidal conflicts. Furthermore, I'd hazard to say that the entire history of Marxist-Leninist social change has known few other methods leading me to further say that a sober analysis of that history points to a struggle for supremacy. Not only over the bourgeois ruling class, but also against the working class and all other oppressed people. Against any and all formations, either of the latter, pulled together that escaped their control. Thus, their mantra of doing everything to seize power for the working class and oppressed is a farce. If there has ever been a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party who has found itself in power and did not subsequently follow that script, I'm not aware of it. While arguments can be found and can always be found to rationalize why it was and is necessary to resort to such measures, and many such arguments do make sense, initially, a closer look always seems to force adherents to fall back on the mantra 
of the flawed individuals who did not hold true to democratic centralism's principles, which are themselves wide open to interpretation and manipulation, in order to seize the initiative in a struggle for domination, as opposed to trying to make a concrete analysis of concrete additions, as V.I. Lenin instructed. I had reached these conclusions on my own, but later I was astounded to learn that the Marxist giant C.L.R. James, the author of the theory that explains state capitalism and the mentor of the African revolutionaries Jomo Kenyatta and Kwame Nkrumah, who brought both Kenya and Ghana out of colonialism as early as 1963, he had said, We have repudiated the conception of the Vanguard Party. That conception ruined the socialist movement and the movement of the proletariat for a generation. The Vanguard Party conception ruined all attempts to form a Marxist party in the U.S. and contributed substantially to the catastrophes which have befallen it. What has happened is that their whole outlook and mentality has been dominated by the concept of a Vanguard Party which had to teach the people about Marxism and other such matter which would make the people understand that they, the preachers, were the ones who should be followed as they were the leaders of the socialist revolution. The whole Stalinist experiment, the whole Nazi regime, are not the results of evil men. They are the result of the drive toward the unification of the executive and political organization of all aspects of the state. Democratic centralism's historical modus operandi, which is supervised and enforced by the Vanguard Party. At the same time, history has shown that such ruthless methods are effective. If the objective of those who use the democratic centralist methods were simply to seize power, then their record during the 20th century was impressive. It has proved itself as brutally efficient and capable of outdoing anything the bourgeois forces are capable of. Nevertheless, in the end, those who gain power using democratic centralist methods have always ended up using it to defeat the aspirations of the workers and the oppressed, and subsequently install the users of it as a new oppressive ruling class. How could it be expected to produce any other outcome? Democratic centralism concentrates more power in the hands of a relative few than any mechanisms the masses the formers purport to be serving can muster. A recipe that's bound to conflict with the vagaries of flawed humans. Stan Goff, in his masterful full-spectrum disorder, believes that D.C., as practiced by Lenin and his Bolsheviks, did have democratic basis, whereby an open and intense democratic struggle was carried out in order to arrive at positions and policies. Then all the party workers would move in a decentralized, freewheeling manner to make possible the the implementation of those decisions in the teeth of czarist uh, repression, which ultimately had the effect of centralizing their combined efforts, only later to change their methods. This led to a more all-around centralization and very little democracy, if any. Without a doubt, any number of other Marxist, Leninist, Maoist-style groups have had similar experiences. Yet, if the clear historical tendency is to always gravitate towards less democratic and more oppressive forms of control, then quite, quite frankly, for one to say their use of historical materialism is leading them to formulate correct liberation ideas, theories, and plans by using democratic centralism is ludicrous. Section 1. The Contemporary Situation Here we are at the beginning of the 21st century, facing a global crisis unknown heretofore in the entire history of humankind. The threats to our collective existence are so multidimensional, it would take many other works to detail them all. Consequently, I'll limit myself to those that I believe are paramount to helping us break out of self-imposed mental roadblocks that hinder our efforts to move forward. The main threat to humankind, the flora and fauna in our entire biosphere, is capitalist imperialism. 
a totally out of control predatory global system of accumulation and oppression that's on a collision course with the limitations of our planet. Daily devouring children, women, people of color, the poor, workers of all stripes, wildlife, and the environment in pursuit of its profits. All of our problems primarily rest on the artificial divisions that have been in engendered between the oppressed for hundreds of years. Divisions based on gender, race, ethnicity, culture, geography, sexual preferences, age, and otherwise. These divisions have been fostered, historically, by those who have sought to use them in their pursuit of power and material gain. Under imperialism, the overwhelming majority of our planet's humans are ultimately workers. Thus, Marx's address to the IWMA still holds true today. Albeit, he underestimated the degree of opposition the workers would face and the length of time it would take for them to overcome all of the obstacles in their path. Marx, superb analyst that he was, due to the Eurocentric predilections that entrapped him, overlooked or dismissed important worker struggles that fell outside of Europe, or he, or he at least failed to study them with the same intensity that he devoted to those European situations upon which he primarily based his otherwise well-based analysis. That set in motion other willful neglecting of formulating an, a proper evaluation of these other struggles, up until today even. A thorough study, evaluation, adaptation, and understanding of some of these workers' struggles will help us move forward in our struggle against imperialism. There, we'll find proven, workable alternatives to the flawed democratic centralist forms of organizing, ones that mirror Stan Goff's analysis of the strengths of the early Bolsheviks' use of that form. Section 2. Back to the Future. First off, let me state that I'm not an anarchist, yet a lot of what you'll read here is going to look a whole lot like anarchism. To that I will only quote an unknown ancient who, after racking his brain to formulate answers to vexing problems, only later to discover that those who had come along before him had already expounded on what he thought were his intellectual inventions. It's supposed to have blurted, quote, confound those ancients, they've stolen all of our best ideas, end quote. Therefore, to the anarchist reader, what follows cannot properly be determined anarchism, because the practitioners themselves never knew that word, nor were they in contact with people of that view, as anarchism is a European ideology, and these parties, for the most part, were Africans and Amerindians, with very limited input by a small number of outcast Europeans. Further, all of the struggles here written about had pretty much taken off and gained success prior to the concept's spread under its classical anarchist thinkers and practitioners. Still, the affinity between anarchism and the following is not rejected. On the contrary, it's welcomed as a sister set of ideas, beliefs, and concepts. As long as the anarchists understand that they stand on equal footing in a spirit of intercommunal self-determination. Section 3. Historical Overview The following is a short outline of various workers' struggles against early European imperialism. As practiced in Suriname, Jamaica, a number of southern areas of what is today the U.S. and finally Haiti. I'll outline how workers who had been enslaved fought longer than Marx's 15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and people struggles in order to ultimately be able to exercise their own forms of self-determination and political rule. And although all of them were as stratified as we are today, they were still able to democratically derive methods and policies that were collectively pursued by decentralized formations of their own making. And once winning their freedom from the various imperialist powers, unlike the later states ruled by Marxist vanguard formations, they never again relinquished their workers-based autonomy until this day, with one exception, Haiti, which deserves special attention. Afterwards, 
I hope that you do your own in-depth research and study, because to most people, the bulk of this history will be unfamiliar. Then, you can decide whether such organizational forms and methods would be useful to us in our struggle to save ourselves and the planet. Section 4. Suriname. Quote, we must slay the Hydra. End quote. That was the Dutch imperialists' main concern in Suriname from their earliest days there. On the northern coast of South America, this tropical country borders Guiana and French Guiana and fronts the Caribbean Sea with Brazil to its south, geographically above one-third, again, as large as Cuba. The first European interlopers to visit the area were the British, which were followed by the Dutch. Always it changed hands between them, but the Dutch were the main imperial power to occupy the country from the mid-1600s up until the 1970s. All during that period, the overwhelming majority of the indigenous Amerindian populations were either suppressed, forced to flee to less hospitable areas, or exterminated. The Dutch at that time were one of the world's major imperial powers, vying alongside the British, Spanish, Danish, Portuguese, and the French for control of North and South America, the Caribbean, and other places in the world. The Dutch West Indies Company was one of the first and a major corporation in the world. And in Suriname, it launched plantation-based production of cash crops on a large scale, using enslaved workers imported from different parts of Africa. Added to that were a number of plantations run by other European entrepreneurs, along with their overseers, shopkeepers, militias, artisans, administrators, bureaucrats, and sailors, and a small percentage of mostly poor white women who had been exiled from Europe. Compared to the enslaved Africans and the suppressed Amerindians, one could compare everyone else, but the small number of plantation operating entrepreneurs and administrators, with what we today recognize as the technologically advanced countries labor aristocracy and petty bourgeois with those elements being fully dependent for their livelihood and protection of their persons and property. From the enslaved workers and remaining indigenous people on the Dutch military, militias, the imperial court, and the big mercantilists. I made those comparisons because we all too often fail to point out that the enslaved Africans were transported across the Atlantic to assume the role of workers. And just about everyone else associated with their plight were also, first and foremost, other workers. Similar to our plight today, and the issue of race did not, could not, change that basic fact. So keep that in mind as we develop this work. Amongst the Africans were many different ethnic groups from different areas of the continent, all speaking different languages, and with many varied religious and cultural practices. To give an idea of the stratification of these Africans, the fact that they all had dark skin meant next to nothing to them in terms of solidarity. Where they originally came from, everybody had dark skin, friends and enemies alike. Furthermore, it was the practice of the plantation owner to try to purchase workers from different backgrounds in order to keep them divided as much as possible. And because the work was so brutal and the food was so inadequate, most plantations were really death camps, where the African workers were literally worked to death in a few years, only to be replaced with newly imported enslaved workers, which would also go on to make handsome profits for the owners. Thus, the turnover itself was a powerful check on the formation of any solidarity between the enslaved workers. Be that as it may, almost from the first importation of enslaved Africans, there developed a tradition of flight from slavery. Africans ran away to the forests, swamps, and highlands. These fugitives came to known as Bosch Creoles, Dutch for Bush Creoles, or born in the forest, and later Bush Negroes which we'll call Maroons throughout our study, as a generic name that has come to be used as an accepted way to describe fugitive enslaved people throughout the Western Hemisphere. 
Throughout the Western Hemisphere, we witness these collective maroons developing and using a very effective form of decentralized organizing that not only served to help them defeat their former enslavers, but has helped them remain autonomous from all unwanted overseers for hundreds of years, even until our time. It must be recalled that the Suriname Africans were from many different backgrounds, so when they would come together as maroons, that would have to be factored into it. They had to organize using democratic methods, and the glue that held them together was their collective focus on defeating their enslavers' attempts to control them. That was what centralized their efforts. There remained, however, one class of their communities who did not fit into the category. Those Africans who did not flee, but were forced by Maroon Raiders to leave the plantation. They did not enjoy a say in their community affairs until they had proven themselves. But as a general rule, individuals and small groups would flee the plantation to join the Maroons. And on occasion, large conspiracies were organized that saw the enslaved workers preparing the groundwork for Maroon guerrillas to raid plantations and liberate scores at a time. This example exhibits decisions arrived at only by true democratic means and then carried out in a centralized manner, all done by otherwise decentralized groups, long before our later Bolsheviks. Over a 150-year period, the various maroon communities of Suriname would wage a guerrilla war with the Dutch and English slavers to remain free. Today in Suriname, their direct descendants still occupy the area their ancestors fought on, and most of them have never suffered under slavery, even before the U.S. signed its own Declaration of Independence in 1776. Even as this is written, they remain autonomous from the government of Suriname, which gained its independence from the Netherlands, whose Dutch ancestors were discussing in 1975. In fact, the descendants of the early Maroons were again forced to fight another guerrilla war against the newly independent government in 1980, a successful effort on the part of the Maroons to maintain their autonomy and control over the lands they've historically occupied. Their decentralized methods had their drawbacks. Their enemies in the imperialist camp were able to manipulate various Maroon communities into signing treaties that gave those communities their freedom from enslavement and land to use in exchange for them cooperating in the hunting down and capturing of other fugitives. By doing that, the enslavers could avoid the all but useless wars designed to capture or kill the skillful Maroon guerrillas and everyone on the Maroon communities fell into that category. At the drop of the hat, the women and children in those communities could pack their belongings and escape to prearrange and built up alternative settlements, while the men and some women busied themselves in fighting rear guard actions against the pursuing colonial soldiers. It turns out, however, that although the treaties did solve some of the imperialist problems, the Suriname Maroons never really fulfilled their obligations to help the imperialists hunt and capture other Maroons. A narrative of the Dutch forces' generations-long wars designed to either capture or kill the Bonnie Maroons is instructive in that regard. By the mid-18th century, the Dutch had been forced by over a century of Maroon guerrilla warfare to sign treaties with three of the most powerful Maroon communities, the Anjuka, the Saramaka, and the Matawai. All of these Maroon communities had evolved over generations from fugitive African from any different backgrounds into new ethnicities, which adopted the already mentioned names. Most importantly, they had soundly defeated all of the imperialist forces fielded to capture or kill them, while continuing to expand their numbers and offer an ever-going threat to the Dutch colony. The treaties came with yearly gifts of all kinds that the Dutch would deliver to the Maroons. Textiles, pots and pans, guns, powder, axes, knives, mirrors, nails, liquor, and just about anything agreed upon during the periodic sit-downs between the parties. The underlying objectives of the imperialists were to both rid, them, rid themselves of a dangerous enemy and turn them into valuable allies. Yet, 
Once it became known to the still enslaved African workers that they could no longer re rely on the Njuka, Saramaka, and Matawai for refuge and protection, they began to seek out smaller maroon concentrations. In the early 1700s, one of those small groups was headed by an African named Asikin Sylvester. Born into this group was a child called Bonnie. His mother was a fugitive African and his father either African or Amerindian. Subsequently, the group chose Bonnie to be its new head after Asikin came, became too old to serve in that position. This Dutch group of Maroons would eventually become known to the Dutch as a new center of resistance. And for the next two generations, Bonnie would lead them, and they'd be known to history as the Bonnie Maroons, becoming their own eth ethnicity. Thus, the Bonnie Maroons just re replicated what the imperialists thought they were suppressing by the signing of the treaties with the other Maroons. Consequently, they would not sign any more treaties with either the Bonnies or any other Maroons, up until the end of the slave period. Bonnie, for his part, would lead his group to aggressively wage war on the imperialists until his death in his mid-sixties. Yet even while the Bonnies became the main fighting force amongst all of those Maroons who were still at war with the Dutch, they still observed and respected the democratic wishes of any fugitives or Maroon groups they dealt with, never trying to centralize all control in their hands. Although they were past masters in the use of coordinated guerrilla campaigns, Amongst all of the decentralized groups, during which a unified command was essential, they still never demanded that everyone integrate themselves into the Bonnie community, or put themselves directly under Bonnie outside of when participating in agreed-upon guerrilla campaigns and during raids. Thus, the Dutch recorded their knowledge of the frequent coming together of the decentralized fighters of the Cormatin Kojo, Chief Puja, Boney and Baron during large campaigns while separating and remaining decentralized and autonomous otherwise. Unlike the Treaty Maroons, they never became dependent upon the imperialists for anything, instead relying on their raiding capabilities to capture guns, powder, cannons, and other useful items. Moreover, they had perfected methods of large-scale open-field agriculture that allowed them to raise harvest and store more food than they could consume along with more farm animals than they could use to supplement their diets. Dutch soldiers recorded discovering Bonnie and related maroon fields that took them an hour one way and 30 minutes the other way to mark off for destruction, along with so many domesticated chickens that they had to slaughter the excess after feasting on them for days. They and their maroon foes always noted how much better the maroons were fed, and how much, better physically how much better physical specimens the Maroons showed themselves to be. It became a prime motivator of the Dutch-led troops to hunt for and locate Maroon food stores and farm animals in order to supplement their own poor diets. During the Dutch's final major campaign in the Second Bonnie War, an expeditionary force of 1,600 Dutch regulars and European mercenaries accompanied by thousands more colonial soldiers and enslaved African workers and, quote, free Negro Rangers, was also unsuccessful, causing the commander to return to Europe with less than a dozen of his force he led to Suriname, and to die himself within a year. From then until the ending of slavery, the Dutch relied on treachery, trying to manipulate the various treaties, and still fighting Maroons against each other. And although they did succeed in getting a younger, less experienced generation of Treaty Maroons to assassinate Bonnie, Chief Puja, and Cormatin Kojo, who were old men who had turned over their leadership to younger Maroons, the other fighting Maroons continued to exercise their autonomy until slavery was abolished. And today, the Bonnie Maroons still live autonomous, autonomously in Suriname proper, where there's more than 70,000 direct descendants of the Bush Negroes. The Dutch imperialists tried their best to slay the Hydra. They failed. Was it because the Maroons' decentralized formations prevented the Dutch from concentrating their superior resources against any one centralized leadership, any bright star? I think so. Have the various Bush Negro ethnicities been able to maintain their autonomy over hundreds of years against all oppressive forces through their refusal to allow themselves to be subjected by any broad centralizing forces? 
I think so again. Section 5. Jamaica. Across the Caribbean from Suriname in Jamaica, from as early as the 1650s, there developed similar decentralized maroon communities. Only there, they were fighting against the local enslavers of the British Empire. After generations of unsuccessful campaigns by the British against the maroon guerrillas, they too hit upon the necessity of trying to divide the fighting maroons from their main source of new recruits, the enslaved African workers. So the British offered the maroons treaties similar to those in Suriname. To force the British to adopt such methods, the maroons fought tenaciously, skillfully, and bravely for over a hundred years. And even though there also, we witnessed a number of decentralized groups. They roughly became to be recognized as the Windward and the Leeward Maroons. The former located in the eastern, Windward, end of Jamaica, and the latter on the westward, Leeward side. And history records the most, and history records the most noted maroon of the Windwards as an African woman named Granny Nanny, who even had a town named after her in the Maroons' liberated territory. Indeed, Nanny Town became the center of the resistance to British plantation imperialism in Jamaica, the headquarters from which the Maroon bands almost succeeded in driving all of the imperialists from the island altogether, even though British soldiers captured and burned Nanny Town on a number of occasions. The dominant personality amongst the Leewards was an African man named Kojo. History records Kojo as leading a tightly controlled and centralized operation. When the Windwards had to make a trek across the island during one fierce suppression effort, seeking the Leewards' help, even Kojo could not force them to abandon their autonomy. Telling, it was Granny Nanny who led a segment of de decentralized Windwards to resist signing the treaties the longest. She went as far as to have the British envoys killed on more than one occasion, and only submitted after Kojo and all the male maroon heads had capitulated. After that, these maroons were used to help the British hunt and capture new runaways, as well as suppress revolts among the still enslaved African workers, although they fiercely clung to the freedom and autonomy they and their ancestors had fought for. In fact, over a generation later, their descendants would again engage the British in the Trelawney War in the middle of the 1790s, during which a mere 267 maroon guerrillas fought thousands of British soldiers, local militia, and enslaved Africans to a complete standstill. They, however, were also tricked and placed on boats to be deported to Canada, and later to Africa, after accepting a truce. Even so... From then until our time, the descendants of those remaining maroon communities in Jamaica still continue to occupy the lands they fought on, and they've never recognized any overlords, neither the British or black governments. Section 6. The United States. It's ironic that those of us who live in the U.S. continue to neglect to thoroughly study and critique the wealth of documented history about the anti-imperialist and anti-expansionist struggles that have occurred here since the Europeans first started colonizing this area, other than the well-known Native American suppression and genocide. Like the volumes of works written about the civil rights, black liberation struggle of the 1960s and 1970s, the early labor movement, women's suffrage movement, abolitionist movement, and Reconstruction period, there's a mountain of other revolutionary material we can learn from. And not surprisingly, that information concerns the struggles of enslaved workers on these shores prior to the abolition of chattel slavery. In fact, it mirrors the already mentioned struggles in Suriname and Jamaica, with the important distinction that it encompasses multiracial aspects, more so than either of the former cases. Namely, in the U.S., until the abolition of slavery, Africans, Amerindians, and Europeans in some areas allied themselves to fight against the imperialist and expansionist powers. That phenomenon was also evident in the Caribbean and South America. But due to the large percentages of enslaved Africans compared to enslaved Amerindians and Europeans, 
Most of those struggles were primarily between enslaved Africans and European imperialists. Thus today in the U.S., such emotionally charged epithets as hillbilly and poor right trash are totally divorced from their historical roots. The first people to be labeled as such were the descendants of the indentured European workers who had escaped that status and allied themselves with both the Amerindian and Africans who had also escaped from slavery or servitude, all of whom combined into maroon communities in areas that are now part of the United States. Initially, the derogatory poor white trash label was reserved for the rebellious, unexploitable, and nonconformist early Europeans, who the colonial and imperial elites could neither control nor use to increase their power. Thus, the trash label. And later, the hillbilly label, and imagery were used to similarly isolate those runaways who moved into the southern Appalachian Mountains to also escape their former indentured status. Both segments were staunch enemies of the imperialists and colonists, who many times allied with Africans and Amerindians, also fugitives from enslavement. At times, these groups formed triracial maroon communities. At other times, they were firmly allied, though living separately, except in the case of the Amerindians and Africans, who mixed freely. Consequently, from the 17th century until the abolition of slavery in the U.S., there were also maroon communities in areas stretching from the Pine Barrens of New Jersey down the east coast of Florida and in the Appalachian Mountains and later to migrate to Mexico's northern border regions. The best known but little studied ones were those who, that occupied the Dismal Swamp of Virginia and North Carolina and the Seminoles of Florida, which contrary to popular belief have never been an Amerindian tribe, but instead from their beginning, an ethnic group made up of Africans and Amerindians who came together to form the ethnicity, just like the Bonnie Maroons were formed in Suriname. All of this replicated the decentralized organizing forms of the Maroons in Suriname and Jamaica. And although their political histories fall short of them winning and maintaining the degree of autonomy achieved in Suriname or Jamaica, the descendants of the Seminoles in Mexico and the U.S. still fiercely guard their communities against the Mexican and U.S. governments. In Florida, they're recognized as a semi-autonomous tribe, and the African Seminole Negroes in Oklahoma, Texas, and Mexico also distinguish themselves from, the from their neighbors, while calling blacks in the U.S. state Negroes. According to new African nationalist cadre from the U.S. who have worked around them, the African Seminoles never considered themselves citizens of the U.S., like African Americans do. Finally, the legendary history and present posture of the people of the Southern Appalachians, and still refusing to fully integrate into the fabric of the U.S., rests more on a forgotten history of their ancestors' struggle to remain free from any servitude or domination than they or we truly understand. Instead, we've adopted the bourgeois myth about them being hopelessly backwards and ultra-racist, although in reality, true hillbilly culture and practice is really isolationist and independent, reflecting the autonomous spirit of their ancestors. Section 7. Haiti. The history of Haiti provides an excellent laboratory in which to test my thesis. What would become the country of Haiti was once known as San Domingo or Saint Domingo, the western part of the island of Hispanola in the Caribbean. Today, the country of the Dominican Republic occupies the largest eastern part of the island. There, between 1791 and 1804, we witnessed one of the most titanic struggles ever engaged in between enslaved workers and their overlords. It is through an examination of the events surrounding that struggle that we can clearly measure the strengths and weaknesses of our dragon and hydra, centralized and decentralized forces of change. Here is a much-neglected goldmine of historical contribution to our search for historical lessons, on par with the Great French Revolution of 1789. For generations prior to the French Revolution, that set the stage for the Haitian Revolt two years later. 
Maroon guerrillas and communities have been operating throughout the entire island of Hispanola. And later, many of their descendants would distinguish themselves amongst the multitudes of the little-known heroic figures of those times. Most notably, the Interpid Mackendall, in the pre-revolutionary period, the 1750s, organized and led a selected group of African Maroons and enslaved plantation workers in a conspiracy designed to overthrow the French and colonial powers by massive and bewildering use of a vast array of poisons against individuals, livestock, supplies, water, and any African workers who were believed to be sympathetic to or in league with the French. After years of terrorizing the island, Mackendall slipped up and was betrayed and subsequently burnt at the stake, fatally crippling his tight, organized, centralized movement. Mackendall's highly centralized group was so dependent on him and the select cadre of others that the French imperialists were successful in fatally crippling the entire movement after unspeakable tortures had exposed them. They were all publicly tortured, maimed, and finally killed in the most gruesome and terrifying warning that had the effect of smothering outward resistance. Although Africans continued to flow and take refuge amongst the Maroons, the latter preferred guerrilla raids to Mackendall's poisoning. But the Maroons were not strong enough to take on the entire French colony as Mackendall's people had. By that time, in just about all of the areas, original Amerindians had been exterminated, only to be replaced by an endless supply of enslaved Africans. The latter produced so much sugar and other agricultural crops that San Domingo became the crown jewel of the French Empire and the backbone of the French economy. So Mackendall's terror campaigns were quickly pushed to the back of the exploiters' minds. But within two years of the outbreak of the French Revolution and the subsequent turmoil caused by it in that colonial possession, a new generation stepped into Mackendall's shoes. One dark night, a large assembly of the colony's Africans met at a secret ceremony. Both enslaved workers and maroon guerrillas met on a mountain outside of town. They represented thousands of other Africans, both on the many plantations and in the fugitive communities in the mountains. The ceremony and last-minute plans were being overseen by Bookman, an enslaved female. They were both Vodun, voodoo spiritual leaders. There was no need to haggle over any last-minute plans. They knew better than Karl Marx's wage slaves that they had nothing to lose but their chains, and the horrible treatment that their masters heaped on them added a sense of desperation for them to kill or be killed once they revolted. Yet, Bookman and the female offered more inspiration than centralized leadership, and when the revolt was launched shortly thereafter, it was led by scores of decentralized bands of African workers, maroon guerrilla groups, who were all joined shortly thereafter by separate mulatto-led groups. Before the well-known Toussaint Levorcher came on the stage, the Haitian Revolution was being led by figures that the decentralized groups propelled forward. The Maroons, Jean-Francois, Bessot and the Mar Durants, and the rebel enslaved workers, Romain the Prophetess, and Yassant the fearless leader of the Battle of Croix de Bouquet. And the mulattoes had a number of their own independent groups and distinguished leaders, Plus, there was also a small segment of whites who were in league with the anti-slavery wing of the French Jacobins and who loosely allied themselves with one rebel group or another. Within two years of the beginning of the French Revolution and continuing for 12 harrowing years, the Haitian revolutionaries would go on to militarily engage and defeat first their colonial enslavers and afterwards a succession of armies fielded by Spain and England as well as a treacherous and traitorous mulatto army, and finally, tens of thousands of Napoleon Bonaparte's French, uh, veteran French revolutionary troops. The victorious Africans would go on to found the country of Haiti in 1803-1804, the only country in world history established by formerly enslaved workers. What better example could we use to weigh Marx's words about the, quote, workers engaging in, quote, 
15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and people struggles in order to change yourself and make yourself fit for political rule, end quote. C.L.R. James, who penned the classic Black Jacobins, dissects that struggle. In it, James compares the Haitian Revolutionary Army led by Toussaint and later Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Henry Christophe with the later Russian Bolshevik Party. This brilliantly led, tightly organized, and courageous army represents my dragon here. And James's book does much to rescue them from the shadow of history from our study. They are the ones who would surface as the most notable elements, while scores of the decentralized receded to the background. So on first reading about them, you would think that this centralized dragon was the revolutionary's best weapon. But the European empire builders of France, England, Spain, and the U.S. wannabes were not going to give up, even though they all had been defeated or were afraid to directly intervene, in this case of the U.S., as it turned out, however, with Toussaint, backed by the Revolutionary Army, assuming the governance of the island, the imperialists pressured and maneuvered him into a position where he and his dragon army began to impose intolerable conditions on the revolutionary masses of workers. And, quote, in the north around Plaisance, Limbe, Dondon, the vanguard, the masses, of the revolution were not satisfied with the new regime, end quote. And astonishingly, in the teeth of Napoleon's renewed threats and the hostile ma uh, machinations of the British and Americans, quote, Toussaint submits along with his generals, end quote. Thus, at one swell swoop, these leaders had been forced to play the role of neo-colonial compradors. Our dragon had been corralled handcuffed, and chained, and they subsequently then set out to use the revolutionary army to deliver the masses back into slavery. Simply because Napoleon feared them, his secret plan was to place all of Haiti's Africans back into chattel slavery, and he sent his brother-in-law and eventually 60,000 more French troops to accomplish his aims. Recognizing the weakness of the dragon's forces and the true intentions of the French, Durant's and the petty chieftains, north, south, and west, each in his own district, summoned black, blacks to revolt. So here, we see the Hydra doing battle with the now treacherous dragon and the French imperialists. It is a reoccurrent tale, this. Once more, the masses had shown greater political understanding than their elders. Our formerly heroic revolutionary army had been reduced to suppressing the revolutionary masses and forcing the latter into fighting black generals who were trying to crush the brigands for the French, propelling our hydra back to center stage. The local leaders beat off their French attacks, causing the French to be more open to yellow fever. Consequently, we witnessed the decentralized Hydra elements launching the revolution, being displaced by Toussaint's army, the dragon, only to resume their leadership roles during a crisis that saw the dragon capitulate to the French, thus showing itself as the most indispensable weapon the revolutionaries developed. Later, as is well known, Toussaint was kidnapped and taken back to France, where he later died in prison opening the way for his chief lieutenant, Jean Jacques, to again switch back to the rebel side, rally the revolutionary army to also switch back to the masses side, and along with the Hydra forces, go on to totally annihilate the remaining French forces on the island and declare independence and appoint himself the new country's emperor. An excellent soldier, Dissalens showed himself to be a cruel tyrant over the Haitian people. Thus, he was assassinated by them within a few years of assuming power. He was replaced by another general from the Dragon Forces, Henry Christophe, who was appointed president in 1807, but by 1811 had declared himself king. He too would be killed by his own people in 1829. Thus, we can clearly see how Haiti's Dragon Forces played a very ambivalent role in the rebel fight for independence.
They started out as tenacious and brilliant fighters against all of the European imperial and colonial elements, and the traitors amongst the mulattoes, who were all but bent on keeping the enslaved Africans underfoot. During the course of the revolutionary struggle, they all opportunistically switched to the French imperialist side and went on to attempt to drown the still revolutionary masses and their decentralized group in blood. Hoping that way the French would allow them to serve as a new elite class of African policemen against the re-enslaved African workers class. Failing to suppress the rebels, the dragon forces rejoined the Hydra elements and lent their way to totally defeating the French, only to once again turn against the revolutionary masses by establishing themselves as a dictatorial and exploitative African elite. For its part, the decentralized Hydra forces never veered from their objectives of winning as much freedom from servitude and oppression as possible. From the pre-revolutionary times of Mackendall up through the 1791-1804 Haitian Revolutionary War, and even down to our time, they've continued to struggle towards those ends. And it's highly instructive to know that in addition to fighting the French during their revolution, they were also under attack by Toussaint's dragon forces, who displayed hatred and fear of everything from their refusal to relinquish their maroon decentralized organizational formations to their practice of their traditional Vodin voodoo spiritual systems. The latter, which did a great deal to inspire their soldiers to martyr themselves for the cause of freedom. And the treacherous attacks carried out on them by Christophe and Dessalines even while both sides were allied against the imperialists, were early signs that the dragon forces were ultimately concerned with power for its own sake. Then, after being pushed to the side after the French were driven out, the decentralized Hydra elements were forced to, again, go underground and eventually morph into a semi-secret Vodum society that until today remain a little recognized or understood autonomous element amongst the oppressed Haitians. Wade Davis's classic, The Serpent and the Rainbow, as well as Voodoo in Haiti by Alfred Mitreau, paints a fascinating picture of how these decentralized elements went from centuries of being maroon guerrillas to, revolution to revolutionary fighters, later to be forced underground, only to surface as today's Bazongo, Zobop, Bosu, Mackendall, Voltigeurs, and other semi-secret Vodun societies, thereby constituting a, ma a major segment of Haitian society that no domestic or foreign oppressors have ever been able to eradicate. Although the dictator Papa Doc was able to manipulate some of them by integrating them into dreaded Tonton Maku secret police, and in another Stangoff book, Sex and War, he tells us, quote, there are Maroons in Haiti again, with the wave of repression sweeping the country in the wake of the last U.S.-crafted coup d'etat. Twice in 2004, I visited one of these Maroon communities in the Central Plateau, end quote. And it's hardly the case that we must restrict our study of the strengths and weaknesses of centralized and decentralized groups, as I have. What about the history of how decentralized forces defeated Napoleon's army in pain? How decentralized forces have defeated every known invader in the border regions of what is today Afghanistan and Pakistan. And how decentralized insurgents are today defeating the U.S. and her allies in Iraq. Section 8. Some Parting Words from a Farsighted Marxist. C.L.R. James penned the Black Jacobins many years before he would later crystallize his theories about the ideas here. Yet, on this, in the introduction to Marxism for our times, C.L.R. James on Revolutionary Organization, edited by Martin Galberman, we learn in 1948, James wrote what was eventually published as Notes on Dialectics. This was a study of working class organization in light of dialectics and marked the ultimate break with Trotskyism, the rejection of the vanguard party. The importance of this break and the theoretical validation of the James viewpoint was demonstrated eight years later in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 and later the French Revolt of 1968, the Czech Spring of 1968, 
and the Solidarity Movement in Poland in 1980. On the one hand, no group of the left or the right was in any way prepared to accept the possibility of proletarian revolution in totalitarian dictatorships of Eastern Europe or in democratic countries such as France. All of their assumptions proved false, that the working class needed a party to lead it in revolution, that the working class needed a press and a network of communication, that what was needed was some crisis in the society, such as depression or a war. With none of these factors in place, the workers of Hungary in 48 hours took over all of the means of production in that society, created a form of dual power, forced the community party to reorganize under another name, and was crushed by nothing in Hungarian society but by an invasion of Soviet tanks. End quote. James wrote, quote, Now, if the party is the knowing of the proletariat, then the coming of age of the proletariat cans the abolition of the party. That is our universal, stated in its boldest and most abstract form. The party as we know it must disappear. It is disappearing. It will disappear as the state will disappear. The whole laboring population becomes the state. That is the disappearance of the state. It can have no other meaning. It withers away by expanding to such a degree that it is transformed into its opposite. And the party does the same. For if the party does not wither away, the state never will. End quote. C.L.R. James from Notes on Dialectics. Quote, on the other hand, even after the fact, the left could not deal with events that demolished their theories of the necessity of a vanguard party and proceeded to ignore the movements in Hungary, in France, and in Poland, movements which Marx or Lenin would have pounced on to study and to hone and bring up to date their revolutionary theories. End quote. Gladberman's Introduction to Marxism for Our Times. Section 9. Conclusion. It's clear that today's center of gravity, the aspects on which all else is dependent and rest is the shared global consciousness of the multitudes of the earth's workers and oppressed peoples, that their lives are daily becoming more and more intolerable, hence solidifying them ideologically around the necessity for revolutionary change. Like our early Maroons were solidified around the need to escape enslavement. And the ability of these multitudes to communicate with each other and share ideas and methods about the best ways to proceed towards that goal. Therefore, the global hardships brought about by today's imperialists and their ferocious accumulation of wealth and their destruction of the environment and cultures will propel the multitudes to use any and all means to bring about the needed changes or perish. And modern means of communication will provide them with the means to both update and imitate the early Hydra strengths, avoid its weaknesses, while guarding against the tendency of the dragons to concentrate oppressive power in its hands. Thus, since both the shared needs and necessity for change is already present, along with the tools to communicate, then our final consideration is whether or not these masses must centralize their organizing, not to be confused with the obvious need to coordinate their efforts. To that, I answer with an emphatic no. And further, I contend that such centralization will only make it easier for our oppressors to identify and level repression upon us, prolonging the crisis our generation must deal with. The historical records of our dragon and hydra are clear, the choice is yours as to which you will choose. As a step connected to my thesis, I put forth the following organizational format. The mosaic. Mosaic is defined as a surface decoration made by inlaying small pieces of variously colored material to form pictures or patterns. At present, there are sectarian divisions due to racial, ethnic, gender, sexual orientation, cultural, and geographic differences 
that hinder individuals, organizations, and entire communities who already interact, cooperate to various degrees, share many of the same concerns, and are faced with similar obstacles to their well-being. But we can all come together like a mosaic and more toward creating positive changes in our collective well-being. The mosaic will not be an effort directed toward imposing any type of multiracial, multi-ethnic, gender-neutral, or conformist utopian universalism. No. The mosaic will allow individuals, organizations, and entire communities to exercise self-determination in deciding what types of social orders they choose to struggle, to bring into being, while at the same time learning how to better come together with others to form societies that will be superior to the ones in which we now live. Thus the word mosaic fits us in many ways. We will add to the dictionary definition by defining ourselves as the mosaic, the movement of oppressed sectors acting in concert. The mosaic, an ideological jumping off point that will serve all of our separate and collective interests. It can also be termed intercommunal self-determination. Inter, existing between communal, of or relating to a community, characterized by collective ownership and use of property, participation in, shared, or used in common by members of a group or community. Self-determination, free choice of one's acts without external compulsion. Determination by the people of a territorial unit of their own future political status. Our mosaic would consist of elements from amongst individuals, groups, and communities, some of whom are already benefiting from interacting and working together, with room for expansion. They include, but are not limited to, women, individuals, and groups, new African and Pan-African peoples, Puerto Ricans, anarchists and anti-authoritarians, Asians, Chicano and Mexican peoples, Native Americans, gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, genderqueer, and transgender peoples, Euro-Americans, ecological activists, animal rights activists, working class peoples, people with disabilities, people who are or have been incarcerated. Our political posture would include, but would not be limited by the following pro-self-determination for everyone, anti-economic, political, and cultural domination, pro-gender and sexual choice, freedom and inclusivity, anti-racism, gender, caste, and class oppression, pro-full human rights for everyone, anti-capitalism, pro-sustainable economics, anti-entropic environmental species and technological practices, pro-species and environmental projections. The mosaic will be built on the principles of seeking to recruit both from amongst the most oppressed segments and from amongst the most selfless. The former found primarily within the ranks of the lower class, women, African and indigenous peoples, LGBTQ peoples, queer and transgender peoples, and while the selfless are found, to a lesser degree, amongst all segments. The mosaic must immediately begin to spread its messages by recruiting people who are willing to help by producing publications of all sorts, as well as utilizing any and all other means that do not transgress its principles, to aggressively push its messages. All mosaic people can contribute to this effort autonomously, while always keeping in mind our collective stance, as well as the sensibilities of other mosaic and oppressed peoples. Finally, the mosaic must immediately begin a dialogue toward building a consensus as near as possible about how to best further coordinate our collective efforts. America 2020, babies born inside an ice camp, Guadalupe is trapped. 
cuffs on her hands. Her first Mother's Day was spent inside a cage. Centros of torture, detention centers, adelantos where they send us. That's where these John Smiths just hope to end us. And the Navajo Nation decimated, neglected by the Trump administration. That's the white virus terrorizing the planet. And fuck Joe Biden and all of his cronies. Free all of the homies, Chicanos and Morenos, Cambodians too. Gun them down once they stand behind that podium booth. Life for the two spirits been traumatic after making the contact with the English and Spanish. Crippled or standing, you're a part of this action. Able or disabled, handicapped, you're a part of this ejército fam. The helicopter still circling above our municipio. But so are my relatives, a condor in the south. In the north, it's the eagle. We're still under attack by these blue-eyed people. Forgotten from the hand of the state, murdered and raped, life disregarded, light a candle in your grace. All your industries, what they man camps need to get banned. On a seat is so up McLands and many territories fighting for natural living earth. Mother since birth, it's a struggle. We tussle, refusal to quit. In the spirit of missing murdered indigenous women, we walk. With the fire in our hearts, monster of men Selling women, children as commodities of sex trafficking All over the world, directly affecting black and brown communities Even our own family members praying on the vulnerable Fuck a dialogue, how about we hang them up Disposable, colonial, patriarchal world is cold Trans relatives, brutalize no one, bats an eye So I light a candle, flame burns strong, shine on Concentration camps. Indigenous, black and brown power. Flame burns strong. Shine on. Shine on. Shine on. Shine on.